the New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. This is episode 354. I'm Paul Spain. I'm Greg Hutana. And I'm Stephen Knightley. Welcome along, gentlemen. Thank you for uh, for joining the show. Pleasure. Pleasure. Now, Greg, let's start with you. Where do you fit into this world of, uh, of technology? Of course, I know the answer to that one, but uh, as you've I, uh, never been on the show before, no. I think listeners will be curious. I usually sit behind the desk making sure it works well. Some weeks it doesn't go so well, but we do our very best. But I work at Corilla Technology. I'm the services manager, making sure the team here has success when they're out in the field with our customers, and uh, it's a real privilege to work at Gorilla. So, yeah. Thanks for coming on. And Stephen? Yeah, so I wear many hats. So one of them is that I'm a board member for the New Zealand Game Developers Association. So we do a lot of high-tech export work there. And I've got my own games studio as well, based in Auckland, called InGame. And we end up doing lots of gamification and VR and educational games. And then I'm also a director of Pursuit Public Relations. And we do a lot of marketing and promotion for both multinational and Kiwi tech companies. Good stuff. Um, well, today definitely keen to chat to you around uh, the announcement that you shared uh, yesterday around the success of the New Zealand uh, uh, gaming industry and uh, and how we're going there on an export front. So we'll come to that during the show. Um, but first up, something that you uh, mentioned a few minutes ago, a company called CropLogic, uh, which I understand you've, you've invested in, is going to be launching on the ASX soon. Now, there's always uh, you know, lots of innovative tech coming out of New Zealand. We don't a lot of it. We just don't hear about. But this one sort of piqued my interest. So, just wondering what you can tell us about yeah. Crop Logic. Well, and why it piqued my interest as well is a lot of people say, "Great, we've got this tech industry in New Zealand, and we've got the agricultural heritage. Why aren't we doing more agri tech?" And I think that's what you know, Crop Logic is a good example of. So it's spun out of I think is it uh, Horton Food Research down in Canterbury. And um, it's sensors, it's satellite data, it's software, and it's 30 years' worth of just research and Kiwi agricultural know-how into how to growing things, all bundled up into one you know, package um, that you can use to grow potatoes better. And so, uh, you know, they're listing on the ASX in the coming weeks. You know, there's, there's also... As with many corporate listings, you know, there's shenanigans and, and queries <laughs> about when the listing date will be and the parentage of um, powerhouse ventures and the like. But crop logic itself is just that nice example of Kiwi know-how, tech, modern sensors, yeah, all put into one. Mm. Well, I do. I do like the idea of putting uh, you know technology out into uh, you know, into our farming environment, so we're, we're able to get this real time data, you know, that feeds back, and so uh, you know decisions can be made that are more timely based on more accurate data, and you know the little tweaks that can be made by having the right information. Yeah, you know, if you can grow, I don't know, you know, even two percent um, of a bigger yield of potatoes. Yep. Um, that can make quite a big difference from a profitability uh, perspective, and if you're able to do it with maybe with less effort because of the uh, uh, the the support from the software, the sensors, and you know this whole offering, um, I would imagine that's probably going to be reasonably attractive to people. Yeah. And look, it's probably even politically uh, topical, you know, given that a farmers and, and growers are going to be charged for water use. You know, that, yeah. that, that, that 2%, that 5% saving in water, yeah, one of those inputs uh, might be useful to them. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, oh, that's good. It's good, good stuff, and uh, we wish them all the best. Uh, we won't get into a discussion of why they're listing on the ASX, not the NZX, and why all those sorts of things. But um, you know, I'm sure as time goes on, uh, once they're publicly traded, that there'll be a lot more information uh, available around them. There'll be more to uh, to track. So it's uh, it's an interesting one. Now, China apparently want to build a. Uh, Sort of a competitor to um, Elon Musk's sort of hyperloop. It looks, in in, uh, in many ways, from the bits and pieces of information I've seen online, uh, certainly to be uh, somewhat inspired by uh, by the hyperloop. Uh, so you know, we're talking about a um, um, you know a, a, a tube-based uh, uh, transport system train, but instead of sort of reaching the uh, 
the the speed of sound. Uh, there's been suggestion that they could um, they could maybe be running at three times the speed of sound, doing over wow. four thousand kilometres an hour, which. Um, I don't know, that's just mind-bending to me to try and get my head around that sort of possibility and how that would work, what that would, um, ha- you know, th- what the impact that could have on passengers and, and, and so on. Well, what's I- left of the passengers <laughs> would be. <laughs> Look, and I know China's a large place, but are there even 4,000 kilometres between Beijing and Shanghai? You know, doing that trip in a matter of hours is phenomenal. Yeah, well, you can yeah you can get from one part of the country to another, and um, you know how long it takes you to walk down to the station um, or, or Uber across town to the station. Yeah. Uh, you get to another part of the country that could be uh, could be pretty cool. Yeah. It seems to be one of the amazing things about those more centrally planned economies like China. They say, "Yep, it's futuristic, it's innovative. Let's just do it." Well, that's mm. certainly how it occurs to us here. You know, it doesn't look like it's been tied up in resource management planning or political debates for a long time that have said, let's do it. Yeah, well, it's certainly been um, yeah, some plus sides and some minus, you know, it's pluses and minuses to the way that China operates. Um, you know, yeah, they, uh, you know, when they're pretty they put the, the big dam together, they said, oh, that means we have to move 20 million people. Well, yeah. They're just going to have to move. All that time that they made everybody work on iron. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, yeah, very interesting. Well, th- th- this this will be one to uh, certainly one to watch whether you know whether it becomes a um, reality. Um, but it's uh, it's coming from the China Aerospace and, and Science Industry Corporation, uh, KASIC, uh, and it's being referred to as a, a flying train that would uh, travel through a, a, a near vacuum um, based tube. Now, the difference being, instead of uh, riding on um, uh, air bearings as it would use magnetic uh, levitation. So, I mean, maglev uh, technology has been around for some time, but I've, I've you know never heard any suggestions of these sorts of uh, speeds. So, be be very curious to uh, to watch and how that uh, how that goes. And of course, there's all sorts of activity going on on the on the hyperloop uh, front as well uh, at the moment and. Uh, on Musk, of course, has been uh, has been sharing some of uh, um, some of the bits and pieces from that testing. I think it was was it late last week. There was a video uh, online of their I can't remember how long their uh, their, their their tunnel is that they've got um, SpaceX in, in Los Angeles, but uh, in the direction of a kilometre uh, long, and uh, yeah, getting some pretty good speeds in that in that very short uh, uh, tunnel for uh, for some testing, which is kind of cool. Uh, now on to on to a, a local uh, subject. We, we talked not that many weeks ago around um, two degrees launching their uh, unlimited uh, data plan for uh, for mobiles, and yeah, you know, it seemed like a reasonably good offering at the, at the time, just coming in around one hundred and thirty dollars. And Spark, of course, sort of following in their footsteps. Uh, not quite minutes later, but uh, you know, I think it was probably within 24 hours. Uh, Spark and and um, and their skinny brand, uh, yeah, had a had a very similar sort of offering in the market. So, the curious thing last week was Spark have then gone on from that original uh, trial, and they've dropped the price quite considerably. So they're now offering their um, so-called unlimited plan for around 80 New Zealand dollars, which gives you unlimited calling, unlimited texting uh, to New Zealand and Australia, and to a degree, unlimited data. Now, the the gotchas on that are that once you hit a 22 gig sort of soft cap, they will potentially slow you down. The discussion I had with them, because this is this is the big sort of bone of contention for most people. Well, it's not an unlimited plan, and and so on. But this does seem to be pretty common around the world in terms of mobile connectivity, where where there are unlimited plans. There's usually a point at which there might be some sort of drop off in speed. Um, but the 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 commentary I got from uh, from Spark before um, discussing this on um, on News Talk ZB last week was that. They 
are committed to giving customers a good experience. So although the speed might drop, and we didn't discuss what the figures would be, but yeah, let's say that you're able to get 50 megabits a second over your 4G LTE connection, uh, but you still want to watch some Netflix, the way they were speaking is you would still be able to stream your Netflix without too much drama. Yeah. So if you were just someone who you know is just a Netflix and a YouTube watcher at home on the weekends and maybe the evenings, could you just use this plan, get rid of well, your, your fixed line? That's what, it, that's what it would suggest if you were just operating off your mobile because yeah. the other bit is that you're not officially, at least, allowed to tether. Yeah. So that that's the other you know challenge with these plans is you can't link your laptop off your uh, 4G LTE connection in your mobile and connect your internet that way. And but, but most I, people but I could airplay to my TV. Yes, you could. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, but most people will maybe have some other sort of device. But as you say, there's there's airplay now. Of course, we have things like uh, the HP X3 and the Galaxy. Well, shortly the Galaxy Note uh, Four. Uh, uh, sorry, Galaxy Note Eight, uh, Galaxy S Eight, where you can run those devices with a screen, a keyboard, and a mouse, mm-hmm. and you can operate them, you know, as though they're a they're a PC. Yep. Uh, so with those devices, you wouldn't really be breaking any rules if so so yeah that 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 could be um one consideration for people i, I could certainly see for say like a one person household or a one and a half person household you probably could get away with that mm. so when mm. you've got a family of kids you probably still need your uh, your <laughs> official unlimited plan yeah yeah so what what two degrees have done is not wanting to be too outdone, but also realising those complaints from people around, well, I don't really want to be slowed down and I would like the option to tether, is they've come in... So, yeah, Spark's offering is around $80, including GST. Two Degrees offering, I believe, is $70. It's not an unlimited plan, but it gives 25 gigabytes worth of data. So it's slightly higher than Spark's cap at the point which they slow you down. Uh, it also operates on uh, on the basis of um, oh, what do they call it? Basically, if you don't use up all your data, uh, then it then you can use it in a in a, in a, in a future month. So you sort of bank, bank the unused data. Rollover. That's the term we're looking for. Thanks, guys. Um, so yeah, that, it's really interesting. It's, you know, two quite different approaches. I. I would sort of lean in the direction of of saying that if they were both on the same network, um, people would probably lean more towards that seventy dollar twenty five gigabyte plan where they can do tethering within it, as maybe being a bit more popular because most people maybe don't need unlimited data. But that's a really hard call because we've seen in the fixed market where you know, for fixed home broadband connections, business connections. You know, huge move to unlimited because people just don't want to have to think about that stuff anymore. Um, and I guess when you do start tethering, mm, is twenty five gigs enough? So, yeah, it's, it's it's interesting. Now, Spark, of course, they also throw in their uh, Spotify and their uh, their their light light box when you buy it through uh, through Spark. But Paul, two degrees came out first with unlimited, didn't they? Yeah, they, I mean, they were, they were the first to the market, and they've certainly been coming Spark in and sort of shaking. given anything, but not been somebody else. I mean, no company wants to give anything away, so especially the the mainstream, they t- tend to not want to trigger any change, as we know, because they're making good coin without the change. So it's always kind of exciting for the market when when somebody triggers something because it creates opportunity for everyone. A- absolutely, so. I think. Um, you know, for customers, it's it's great. For you know, shareholders of these companies, it's not always so good. The, the I guess yeah, there's there's a bit of a question there around how much do we appreciate what Two Degrees have actually done in terms of bringing down our, the the costs in the market in New Zealand. I mean, I know for uh, for for my business for Gorilla, yeah, within a reasonably short space of two degrees coming into the market, our mobile bill had halved and it's probably a quarter of what it was five to 
well, no, two degrees have been around a lot longer than five years, but it's yeah, it's probably a quarter of what it, what it was, uh, you know, per head, you know, av- averaged out than certainly what it was um, ten years ago. Anyway, um, and some of that stuff is quite natural. So, yeah, do we give too much credit to two degrees? I was just thinking about that because you look at other markets overseas and you see that similar price decreasing naturally, but it's naturally within a competitive market. Yes. So, you know, would we have had that if it had still just remained a duopoly? You know, there's, and you could nice. argue there's other New Zealand markets and industries where you don't have competition and why, are, you know, why is building supplies or foods more, more expensive in New Zealand? Um, but, yeah, so look, maybe they've created the competitive market which then allowed those natural price decreases to kick in. Mm-hmm. So that certainly helped. The, I guess yeah. the question is, are there many people who are who are willing to go with two degrees because of what they've done? I think you know most people will go with mm. you know even if two degrees have caused that to happen, they'll go with the telco they think they get the best results from. And if you've got a choice between two degrees and a big player like Spark, who's likely yeah you know, probably in most cases to have a, a better footprint with their network. Uh, customer service, that that sort of thing certainly can can, but I, I can think vary as a, a lot. As the newer brands grow and they have consistency, then eventually they become the household name, and of course they're the forerunners of things. So it can be changed. It just takes time. So mm. I suppose that's what long term investment's all about when you're yep. sewing into something new, and and you know it's it's that kind of situation. So and, and when they first launched, you know, two degrees. Was was um, popular teenagers, for instance. But, mm. you know, by now, they're now you know, kind of owning, yeah. you know, now lead tenants on flats and possibly getting into homeowners. You know that generation. Yeah. Yep. Right. Well, they've certainly they've been around long enough. For they're they're generally doing a, a, a pretty successful job out there, uh, and certainly their, uh, their their fixed offerings are uh, are pretty good too. So, on to another local subject and. Well, let, let's let's see how we go on this one. Um, this came up in the news last week around Kiwi Bank burning through ninety million dollars on a on a failed uh, you know, technology project, and this one was rather curious t- to me because Kiwi Bank aren't a really old company that have been around for you know a whole a whole lot of decades. So they shouldn't have all sorts of um, uh, skeletons in the closet from a technology standpoint that they're trying to that they're trying to deal with. Yeah. Yet they've still, uh, yeah, managed to get into this uh, position where they're, they're not writing off uh, uh, ninety million dollars on um, um, on this project. Um, Known as as Core Mod, uh, which basically isn't going to uh, deliver on their uh, their requirements. Some it's, it's a little bit of a shock. It's sad. Um, then again, when I, I mean, I guess I look back to the early days of um, of Kiwi Bank, and I went through, and I think I was looking for a home loan or something. And I thought, well, okay, they, they appear to have some quite good offerings. It may have been a credit card, but I remember going through and filling out their form online. It took me about 20 minutes to fill out the form, and then I clicked the next button, and it said, oh, you've left out some information. Please hit back or go back. And I went back to a, to a, yeah, a blank form. Um, yeah. <laughs> of, of course, that was, the, uh, that was the end of my uh, interaction with that particular entity. Um, so... Yeah, they, have, they haven't always got their uh, their their tech, done their technology stuff brilliantly, um, but they've certainly done a done a good job around building from nothing to uh, uh, you know I think they're a pretty well respected brand around the country. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, and, and as you say, look, it's just sad, you know, the, the tech industry in New Zealand. You know, we've we've learnt this lesson several times before, so it's just sad that cases like this still get reported. And as you say, they haven't. It's not like they've got legacy systems holding them back. Yeah, it's just a poor decision somewhere along the line. But even if you go to Kiwi Bank, because I'm with Kiwi Bank, and I I swapped maybe two years ago. That's not saying they got a lot of money put into their account when I swapped, but it was kind of like since then I've watched my Kiwi Saver do nothing, 
and yet under the previous bank it was kind of going very well. And I don't know if that's market forces or whatever, but it, that's been disappointing. And then you go to the ATM to try and put money in the wall, you know, because most modern ATMs you can put money in the wall, but of course with Kiwi Bank you can't. They don't have that facility. So, you know, somewhere along the way they've just kind of, just not kind of landing on what they should be. So for an end user to use their ATM versus Westpac or whatever, I can't do the functions I could do before. So, of course, that becomes frustrating and eventually, you know, can you, you just go somewhere else, right? So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's across the board. They've probably not done themselves too many favours, even though people like me would have tried to assist them by changing banks or whatever. But, if, you know, feel good, but the outcome has not been... So is that almost a case that they didn't have some of the old legacy services, so you didn't go with them? Like cash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's an old school. No, it, you know, it was more like at the time when I was, you know, <laughs> support New Zealand, blah, blah, whatever, yeah. you know, just, just those kind of things. But yeah, yeah. yeah but ultimately their technology has not been up to, to play even from the simplest thing like an ATM mm. machine, mm. which I'm mm. sure costs a ton of bucks. So they've had to make decisions, but it's, you know, it's across the board it's been a little bit disappointing, but... Yeah, yeah. Well, and of course, yeah, we don't. You, you don't know all the facts behind these things, no, but certainly so. on the surface of it, it it seems pretty pretty disappointing. And especially when when uh, yeah, I think this is money spent offshore. Uh, yeah, and you you do wonder could it have been done better locally? There's, I mean, there's but there's there's so much that um, that we don't know, and without an insider to uh, you know sp- a whole bunch spill, of spill all the beans. inside Kiwi Bank, you know, who we should actually be commiserating <laughs> with. Yeah, yeah, probably as frustrated as as, as anyone else around uh, around what's happened. Um, but there you go. These are the that's the the reality. Sometimes things uh, don't work out, and I mean, let's just let's just. I guess oh. hope we can do better on these sort of bigger projects in the future because it is really important for our success as a you know as a country and for our economy that we get really good at being able to do these these sorts of things and we'll talk about Sky a little bit later um, but you know they're another company who you know I I'm disappointed with how, you know what they've been able to deliver on from a technology standpoint with with their uh, offerings. And uh, they certainly should have had enough money to be able to get things uh, right by now. And just wrapping up on Kiwi Banks, I think I saw Rod Drury tweeted um, something to the effect of, oh, if only a local Kiwi software company had you know, worked with them to develop a banking as a platform or blank banking as a service platform, mm. you know, there's a missed opportunity there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's you know that's fair point. We've certainly got you know got the smarts to develop these things locally. Uh, uh, maybe the situation for Kiwi Bank, as is quite common, is they were looking to be able to achieve something quite quickly. They didn't want a sort of a, a long you know ramp up of building something from scratch and so on. Um, but you know, there's there's always two two sides to that and if you're going with older legacy technologies and so on then um, then they can have their challenges and you know sometimes it is better to uh, to start from scratch um, now something I saw pop up on uh, on geek zone was that uh, Vodafone are uh, um, exiting their email hosting for those with uh, Vodafone dot net dot NZ email addresses and it's my impression from the the bits and pieces I've read so far that this doesn't cover off uh, some of the other email addresses that people might have uh, through their Vodafone uh, accounts. And, um, you know, I remember sort of... um, yeah, talking to my parents about this some um, some years ago, and, and you know, my mum was the uh, um, the one that was always more interested in the consumer tech, even though it was my my father that had sort of uh, you know was was the real technologist in the, in in the house because he was you know he was involved in the in the in the tech world from the early days. He started out turning turning a handle on a calculating machine um, after uh, after university and and you know really old school technology before getting into uh, uh, yeah, programming languages like COBOL and Forth and and uh, working at the University of Canterbury. But yeah, I remember having this discussion and it was just like, oh, we don't want to change our, our email uh, addresses. Now, you know, my mum has no need to uh, change her email address uh, 
now because uh, she's no longer alive, so she managed to find a way out of having to deal with that particular hassle. Um, but um, I'm, I'm curious whether Tattoo has a, a paradise email address will uh, will get by or uh, whether there'll be a bit of uh, change uh, for him there with having to uh, change that. But uh, what do you guys think? Should we still be using these old... Uh, Email addresses, extra and Vodafone, and ones from our from our ISP that kind of lock you in, and they're usually, you know, they've traditionally been reasonably disappointing in terms of their capabilities. Stephen, a bit of nostalgia with them. Yeah, um, okay. Around the office the other day, we were, I think we were talking about our old ICQ handles, you know, and and, and I I found my old Hotmail account the other week. It was like crazy, you know, the nostalgia from it. So you could um, still get into it, could you? Yeah, but yeah. but hey, but. Look, Ten years later, switching to another email provider. Yeah. I've forgotten the pain was the pain was temporary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's it's just funny the the hosted email services. Like, so sure, when the internet first arrived, we needed the ISPs to provide those to us because you know the mom and pop, you know the general tech consumer, you know, couldn't configure their own you know, email server and the like. But you, when you were talking about Sky and um, Two Degrees, oh, sorry. Uh, Spark and two degrees earlier, and the fact that they've now bundled with Netflix or bundled with Spotify as these value-added extras, um, so that they don't have to compete on price, mm-hmm. and so they lock you in as a loyal customer. You know, twenty years ago, that's what the email account was. It's this value-added Absolutely. way of locking you in as a loyal customer. And um, it's interesting because I was dropping my girls at the airport um, the other night, and. And, of course, there's the old taxi phones still there that you can pick up the phone and call the taxi. And my youngest, who's seven, said, Dad, what's that? Yeah. I said, that's, that's a phone. <laughs> they don't have a phone at home. They just have mum has a mobile and yeah. she never notices at our house, so she didn't know what it was. And I just thought, yeah, I am getting old. That's really and interesting. Of I remember yeah. ex, you know, extra and all those things when I was growing up. That was, you know, you had, yeah. you had all these things, but it's like, what does that mean to this generation? Yeah, my son's grown up without there ever being a fixed phone in the house. I mean, you know, the old house, there was a, a nostalgic sort of, you know, Bakelite or whatever it was, old, you know, 1950s phone or something that, mm. yeah, is not, not connected into anything but uh, still on the wall. And, you, yeah, you forget there's, there's a generation that just doesn't even know what this stuff is. Yep, I had to explain what a rotary phone was, you know, the other week. Um, and actually, to their credit, at, so Motat at Auckland, they've got one of the old phone exchanges mm. with the manual switches in it. So and the kids were actually fascinated by that. Yeah. But, yeah. wow, how would we need giant cabinets to switch things these days? <laughs> It's, it's, it's incredible how far we've come. The disruption that technology has brought. All of those people out of jobs that were there connecting phone calls not that long ago. Yeah, so it is interesting. In fact, I, um, when, I, when I saw this uh, thing, it uh, reminded me of a discussion that I, was, I had um, at, at a function with, um, with Tony Beard, who's the, uh, the CTO at uh, Vodafone. Um, it was earlier on this year, and um, yeah, we, for whatever reason, we ended up on this topic of internet providers having to provide, uh, you know, email, and you know whether it was relevant and so on. And I, you know, I could see, uh, you know, certainly from their perspective, that maybe there was there's some benefit in them holding on to providing that service because there would be a small percentage of customers who might not move because. Of that email account that's that's tied to them, um, but I actually think it's quite good that they're uh, that they're they're putting the the chop on this. Um, so I'm I'm kind of kind of pleased in a in a way. And there probably is a business case there because um, so I do a lot of gamification consulting, and often the business case for gamification is about retention and getting greater usage out of a product, not so much selling people to get into the product, but using it better. But look, a five percent increase in retention. When you consider that you might have five or ten or twenty percent customer churn each year, it's probably one of the most cost-effective marketing things you can actually do. Hold on to three percent of customers is probably worth it. Depends what it, I guess it depends what it what it costs. And uh, yeah, the old school email systems people probably aren't very aren't, aren't probably super pleased with some of those older school ISP systems. And uh, yeah, obviously Spark went through and they transitioned uh, uh, there. So yeah. Um, anyway, say la vie, end of, uh, end of those email addresses. Um, now, what I didn't actually mention was the date that that was exiting, and I'm just trying to see. 
if I can find it now. Um, no, I will. Uh, I That's think, one it, of the I think it's in the October time itself, frame, isn't it, so. Paul? About staying current, yeah, because you can suddenly find yourself behind the eight ball, and you don't even realise it when your kids, when you suddenly realise your kids are, are so different from their perspective and so on that the business can be the same you can suddenly find yourself just slightly where you shouldn't be in the space between where you should be moving and stopping and suddenly you find yourself in a world of pain so yeah i mean it's certainly uh, certainly one that you know the we often come across uh gorilla where we you know one of the first uh things that we tend to do for a, for a, a company as we go on and and audit, you know, what have they got in terms of technology, and how does it line up with their um, uh, their their business strategy? Is the technology that they operate and their technology strategy does it re- is it really a, a, a good fit or not? And um, yeah, it's it's fascinating some of the old things that you find that just uh, really limit organisations because they don't have the right uh, the right pieces and haven't kept up to date. And even when I've come across boards or companies who know that there's a disruptor out to get them or a new disruptive technology, their challenge is then, well, when do we jump ship or, or can we um, timing, make yeah. that transition? Do and we set up a, do we set up a subsidiary challenger brand to eat our own lunch or or, or not? And that's those are re- really hard things, and I, you know, I was um, asked a few days ago to go and uh, you know speak to a, a company that um, you know na- a nationwide company with franchises all around the country, and um, they you know, wanted me to talk with, the, with their board around the coming wave of disruption and and you know help them in terms of steering and navigating it, and you know, I guess very common for uh, you know the leaders within companies to not all be really up with the play from a technology standpoint and understanding and so that can make it really hard if you've got maybe just you know uh, one or two people on a board who who have a feeling of where things are going and then you've got the others who are like well look we've been operating this way our business has been running this way for 50 years and we've heard all sorts of things are going to change we haven't seen it yet so we probably should just keep doing what we're doing and uh yeah it's uh it's it's really hard because you don't know when those when those things are where it's going to flick over, and uh, and when the, the the changes are coming, and again, that's going to tie us back to our um, our discussion about Sky. So maybe we should jump into uh, jump jump into that. And we've we've talked about Sky quite a few times in the past, so we won't uh, you know spend too long on this one. Um, but y- yesterday, I got a call from uh, New Zealand Herald, and um, they they wanted me to come in and. Um, uh, Talk on you know one of their videos with uh, Tristram Clayton to discuss the fact that Sky TV shares had dropped to an 18-year low, and just yeah the um, the state Sky are in, and that was really off the back of um, news last week that. Actually, because we, this was this was talked about probably four or five uh, weeks ago, the the discussion I had with Mike Hosking around um, the potential impact on Sky if Amazon were to come in and were to try and take the rugby rights, and so then what we heard in the last few days is well, actually this appears to be the case at the next kind of uh, the next chance to bid for these rights it seems very likely that yep. uh, that Amazon actually will uh, will do that and um, yeah what sort of a what sort of a state does that leave uh, leave sky in if they if they were to lose the rugby for instance I mean that, that if they lost the rugby that would be the death knell for them surely absolutely. Um, Look, now, I'm not a TV buyer, but I do know a bit about you know, creative industries, creative businesses. I suspect they would still hang in there for the next generation, the next round of rights. And the reason for that is, like, as a per capita level, Sky would, would be willing to pay more per person, per individual viewer, 
because in the New Zealand market, you know, rugby is that thing that you, you know, will organise parties and go to the pub and pay for you know, to actually watch that test or watch that match. You know, we've got that, that fan intensity, and that actually is a way of measuring the brand, uh, the brand value, particularly of entertainment products and sports products and video games. Whereas Amazon, they're going to spread that cost out of over a global audience who don't give a damn about rugby outside of you know, the rugby-playing nations. Um, so, you know, and that's kind of partly how these deals are done. So just, and, and, and because Sky's business model is selling advertising as well still, and that's where the per capita or the per individual, you know, uh, revenue that they get in will, will, will be, their business model, dependent on advertising, advertising still likes mm. high-intensity people who give a damn about your product. Mm. Mm. So just Amazon will spread it out globally with a lower intensity. But this is the other part of the puzzle. What Amazon actually did say they were doing with the um, rugby union is they're making a documentary about the All Blacks. Yeah. So is that Amazon beginning to grow the market for rugby outside of you know, Australia, and, New Zealand, and, and, and rugby-playing nations? If the, if the long game is Amazon growing rugby in North America, well, okay, then they've got a business case for it. That's right. Yeah, and, and I think for, um, for Amazon, there's all sorts of reasons why they might do it as well. They might want to just hey, we'll put New Zealand on our list of test markets, we'll put rugby in as something we're going to try. Look, how, how would it work if we managed to develop the sport to a bigger if, audience? If they're going to be able to bid for the rights for NFL, maybe second-tier sport in their eyes would be rugby. Mm, mm. So there's all sorts of possibilities, and they don't need to make a profit. Interesting thing for Sky, they're still making really, really good profits. Um, yeah, they're valued around a billion dollars now, which is you know dramatically lower than what they were, um, yeah, over a hundred million in in profits, but it might not take too you know too much. I mean, especially we're talking about four years off, I think, till those rights come up. So it's still you know still some way off. They're losing what well, they lose about twenty percent of their customer base over the last twelve months. In four years' time, they actually might not really have much of a business, and. There. It's not feasible for them to sort of do Amazon's game and say, "Ah, oh, we'll just do this." We're, you know, we're going to lose money for a couple of years, but you know that that's fine. Amazon can can uh, can afford to go into markets and um, and and yeah, not not make a profit um, just just to win the share. So I know, I think there's definitely more work that uh, that Sky need to do. I don't think their offerings are cohesive, you know, enough in terms of their digital offerings, and you know, and um, and I'm not. You know, I'm not sure really what's going on behind the scenes um, there, but just the outside factors suggest that there's something there's there's something they haven't got right, and um, there haven't been any huge changes there from what I've seen at Sky. So uh, I'm wondering what it, what it will take to uh, uh, to fix things, or whether we're all completely wrong and they've got it all sorted out behind the scenes, and we're going to, you know, see things suddenly turn around very, very quickly sometime soon. But, um, but I'm I wonder, not, like, sure as an end one. user, we, you know, our house wouldn't just change because it was ten dollars cheaper to do it through Amazon or whatever, because it's now cheap enough that it actually doesn't impact our, you know, the cost of it has come down so much. If it was to stay like that for the next ten years, we'd be happy as. Even if we went up ten bucks, it wouldn't really matter compared to where it was. But obviously, what are you spending a month with with Sky? Thirty nine, right? So, but you were spending over, well over a, well over a hundred, so right? A huge so drop for them, they'll still it? be reliant on a lot of people spending that over a hundred. If everyone was down at forty dollars, I don't think yeah, they'd, the be break, they'd be able well, to break so even. I'm right? wondering how so, do they stay in business if they're yeah, at forty dollars? Yeah. And they didn't actually sell the package to us; it was the third party selling it. So was, I, I really don't know if they're making any money. But, of course, they need to make money versus Amazon that just wants to create market share who don't need to make a profit and have got a lot more you know, money in the bank to, to be able to throw at things. So, yeah, uh, yeah it'll be interesting to see if the, the rugby union just goes for the pot of gold or <laughs> they see past the pot of gold and see other things that, you know. I mean, one of the things I've learned um, about just about digital content models is you can have multiple price points. Mm. So if it was 40 bucks mm. to keep you as a customer, because you know, the marginal cost of supplying you that content is, is zero, 40 bucks to keep you as a customer would still be worth it for them. Mm. Um, you know, this thing, the digital economy doesn't have to be one price point for, for everyone. Mm. You just don't tell everyone. 
And that's, that's their challenge now that the, the media talk about it so much and say, hey, yeah, just call up Sky and tell them you want to cancel and they will give you a call back and offer you the same service yes. at half the price. Yeah. Uh, or, they'll, or they'll do that on the same call. <laughs> so that that makes it fairly, yeah, uh, fairly challenging. Information if they, travels If they ring me up and say, oh, Greg, we have to put the price up, I'll just cancel it. <laughs> <That's why. laughs> so, so actually I had an interesting conversation in the office the other day kind of about the ethics and the consumer affairs law Mm. Of if you were to do, say, artificial intelligence, big data-enabled variable pricing, what if I figured out what your economic, you know, pain point or price point was, and what I could pitch exactly to you? Yet I offered a different price to, to Paul. Is that ethical? And you know, could the Consumer Affairs you know Act come down on you and say we well, offered that price to one individual? Why are you? Well, they're starting to do that now, even without AI, in, in terms of medical and where you live in the city, you can get oh, cheaper because you happen to be. We've always you know, given, so we've always had student discounts mm. or retired gold card discounts, and, and you know, economics one hundred and one explains mm. why that is. Mm. You you fill in all the space below the supply and demand curve, mm. but um, yeah, what happens once you know, the bots start managing that? Don't go there. Not yet, anyway. <laughs> now, a quick a quick mention around um, Ring, and you know, I've talked about their technology before. The Ring uh, video doorbells, and uh, we've I've you know used them at home uh, in the past, and we ha- we've had the technology at, at Gorilla uh, this year. Now, I did make a um, a, a fatal mistake when, uh, well, not fatal, but a, a, um, a bit of a mistake when uh, when moving out of uh, a house uh, last year, and uh, we had the Ring video doorbell there, which is very handy from a surveillance point of view, seeing who's coming up to your door and alerting you and, and so on. Um, we moved out of the house and we disconnected the the router. Internet connection. I think we may, it may have actually still technically been available, but anyway, the connection wasn't running, and uh, somebody basically stole the ring doorbell, um, which of course we would have captured all of that on the on the video surveillance that it, that it does. Uh, so it operates like a normal doorbell, but it also picks up motion detection and so on. And it's got cloud video storage. You'd get all that footage, you'd pass it to the police or whatever, or you could actually see real time that the person, that there's somebody at your door and you could talk to them over the connection or, you know, they weren't far away. We could have driven around there and uh, sprung them, called the police, whatever. Um, but we disconnected the internet, so we knew nothing until uh, going around there the next day and uh, someone's broken into the house, they've stolen the doorbell, etc. Now, ring cover you and give you a new doorbell if your doorbell gets stolen. Um, I think they're probably assuming most people keep their internet connected so that it's a very low likelihood. Um, but they've introduced a new product that sort of you know fits uh, fits into that sort of surveillance and uh, type uh, space. And I've just had it uh, installed. Uh, they sent me one of these to try out uh, and to and to keep because once you've installed them, they're you know not the sort of thing you'd be ripping out again and uh, um, sending back. But uh, their Ring floodlight cam, which is just launched in the New Zealand market, so we replaced our existing floodlight uh, down our driveway with the Ring floodlight cam, and basically it picks up anybody you know walking or driving uh, down down our driveway. And gives you full HD um, footage of it, and uh, yeah, pretty uh, pretty cool actually. Good good little so innovation. Good. The imagery is just like just so crystal clear. It's incredible. I was looking at it before. And I was like, man, that's stunning, eh? Compared to the old uh, the old sort of surveillance footage that was all grainy and you know pretty useless, right? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so they've launched that. Um, they've also launched a, gen- a second generation of their Ring um, doorbell and trying that out at, uh, at the new house. Um, they've, they've just made a few changes there. It's easy to get your battery, um, or you can separate the battery out and charge it without having to disconnect the whole thing. Uh, if you need to angle the, the, the camera a little bit, it comes with the bits and pieces like that. So they're obviously paying close attention to feedback they get from customers, but I think the first-generation product was, was really good anyway. Uh, and now I guess they're, they're just looking how to improve and to um, you know, make sure it's a, a good long-term offering big, for big people. Big Brother's come to the house even now. Yeah, well, it's it's good tech because you tie that together with say a, a smart a smart lock, and uh, you know we've been looking at well, do we do we Airbnb our house that's on the market? Because realistically, 
people need to get in over the weekend for open homes at the moment. Um, but other other than that, you know, could we Airbnb it out during the week? But we don't really want the hassle of having to go over there and so on. The smart lock, one of these, you can let let uh, you know let somebody in to, if they need to do some work or maintenance in the house. Uh, and with a smart lock, someone could come and go. The, you know, as they please, they can be automatically sent codes or you know app access to uh, to open the door and you've got an idea on whether they're bringing in a hundred people for a party or not um, so you kind of cover your bases so yeah, I think there's some good some good stuff there with this tech and of course there's some other competing options in the market um, but I think ring seem to be doing a pretty good job as the, uh, the sort of innovators in that space um, now Stephen I'm keen to hear from you about uh, what is happening in New Zealand's um, you know, from the New Zealand Game Developers Association perspective on you know how we're doing as a country, how the exports of um, uh, you know, gaming in its various uh, aspects is, uh, is progressing because the $100 million uh, figure seemed like quite a nice uh, milestone to hit. It is. It's a beautiful, nice round number. You know, we ex- export it. Well, Ninety nine million nine hundred and eighty thousand. It's like, oh, just, if someone out there just like sold twenty thousand more units, we'd be perfectly on a hundred million um, for the last financial year. So yeah. that's you know, the, the studio members of the, the Game Developers Association. And um, no, it's just great to see. So look, we're, we're one of the, and that's twelve percent growth each year, and it's been about that for the last three or four years. Um, the year before that, we had fifty percent growth, and the year before that, we had like two hundred percent growth. But you can do that when you have small numbers. Yeah. Back when we were, back when we thought fifteen million a year was good, yeah. Um, so look, so this, the, this is the the great thing about gaming is this. Um, Paul Callahan, Sir Paul Callahan, you know, said that thing about innovation in New Zealand. It's the strange little niches, you know, that New Zealand can compete and excel in. And I think it turns out that gaming is is one of those, you know, and it's great. It's digital, high tech, weightless exports, and it's a mix of creative IP and creative mm. products as well as you know tech smarts as well. And, and I legitimately believe there is something in the New Zealand DNA or education system that makes us good at mashing those two things up. And, and you can call that innovation or R&D. And I think the word I've just settled on just is design, you know, which is really thinking about what your audience wants at any moment in time. And maybe it's not just the functional requirements of this piece of software. It's that emotional journey that you're taking them on. So, yeah, and that just means we make good games. Um, that's that's great. And so, when we when we look at this, because you know, we're we're growing in New Zealand in terms of our our software type exports overall. Um, we've got uh, you know zero uh, push pay is another one. We've we've uh, yeah we, we talked to uh, uh, founder Chris Heslop on um, the New Zealand Business Podcast. In fact, that might just been out. Um, this week, if I'm if I'm right about which episode we've just launched, um, which is probably a good listen for people, um, but one of the challenges we have is finding the right uh, you know expertise, having the right sort of uh, developers and so on. How what have you noticed in terms of the, the the makeup of where the expertise is coming from? It certainly seems that people are more than happy to come from other parts of the world to work in New Zealand, yeah. and 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 you know bring their creativity and their software development skills uh, with them. But, of course, we've got some really great local talent as, as well. What, what's the mix that yeah. you're seeing? So, so it's interesting. In our survey, I think about 42 40, or 47% of the studios said that skill shortages you know, are a concern and are you know, holding back their growth. And there was, a, in our rapid growth those last few years, I think there was a period we reached about three years ago where we had hired everyone in New Zealand with any experience in yeah. game development. So the senior management ranks um, in particular, you know, we've done really great at hiring and attracting some great people from overseas to fill those senior um, roles. And then now what's nice in New Zealand is some of the tertiary education institutes, some of the universities are now churning up graduates who actually have you know, specialisms or, or minors and majors in mm. game development. Mm. So we've got that mix happening there. Um, but yeah, hey, look, we're we're still hiring. You know, we we expect to hire ninety or so people in, in the year to in the year ahead. Yeah, yeah, that's um, that's really cool. Now, I was talking to so, someone else, and this is a, another upcoming New Zealand business podcast episode. But a uh, a, a network technology uh, firm based in um, uh, in Silicon Valley, but run by a, uh, a you know very successful Kiwi there, 
and you know I I, I wondered for his business whether um, you know he couldn't have done it anywhere else other than Silicon Valley but it, I mean it certainly seems in gaming New Zealand is just a really really good place to be right there there's no you know other than that um, need to pull talent in from overseas which seems to be able to happen um, there aren't really too many downsides of operating from here, are there? Correct. You, you, you can do it from anywhere. And one of the nice things is, um, so the games industry in New Zealand has ended up being reasonably geographically spread. Sure, there's Auckland and Wellington, um, but um, there are game studios in Westport, um, in the Epic um, co-working centre there, um, and Dunedin is kind of the next growing uh, hub. Mm. And actually, when you're talking about attracting a talent you know, to New Zealand, um, Dunedin's a great example. So we attracted back one of our, our famous sons, one of our stars. There was a New Zealand game developer called Dean Hall, and he uh, made an incredibly successful mod and then game called DayZ, which is a zombie post-apocalyptic you know, game. Our young um, gamer on the side there that you can't see is smiling yeah. awake. And, 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 and also, at this point, several, several um, listeners have also said, hurry up and finish the game. Um, but he hasn't even been involved with it for the last year or two. Um, but he's returned, you know, to Dunedin. Um, he's from Omaru originally. He went to Otago University. You know, he wants to turn Dunedin into a games hub, um, cool. and and to make AAA games. You have to make large console games. You have to do the equivalent of a Lord of the Rings blockbuster style game in New Zealand. And and, and so yeah, we've got a hundred million dollars last year. But, but that actually is peanuts. And a lot of people say to me, "Oh, great, your your industry's sorted, is it?" <laughs> But no, you know, the wine industry is a billion plus or whatever. Um, Finland's game industry is $4.4 billion. You know, so $100 million is small fry. Um, you know, a triple A video game easily makes $100 million by itself. Mm. You know, uh, you know the, the top tier games that you see, your Grand Theft Autos, you know, they make a billion in their opening month. You know, they're equivalent of Hollywood blockbusters. So... Well, the, the, game, the, the gaming industry is um, where, where does it sit now in terms of comparison with uh, with Hollywood in terms of as a as, a, as an industry or the film industry. So, so, so the, the the video games industry globally is about 130 billion. Um, global box office is actually only about 80 billion. Um, so I think, but when you actually look at Hollywood, actually merchandising and all the, the other secondary bits and income pieces. streams. So actually, even if you consider all those secondary Hollywood income streams, we're probably equal pegging with them now. So we we should be really trying to you know ramp this up because we've got the capability. We seem to we have the capabilities, we have the creativity, yeah, you know, the ability to design uh, great stuff. We certainly yeah uh, 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 you know a, a number of well quite a quite a, a large number of people in New Zealand have shown their their capabilities and. Um, uh, in the in the film uh, industry, and yeah, that that's ended up doing very well for us. So you know, um, yeah, I don't know what the what the numbers sort of stack up to. I think they they probably bounce around a little bit more than uh, uh, the, the the gaming industry. Yeah. Um, but it seems like we, you know yeah. we must be able to do something to grow it and and grow it quicker. Any thoughts on what that that should look like? Um, uh, yeah, but actually, just before I get there. Um the great thing about the games industry and, and the growth we've had is it's been so steady. So mm. it's it's sustainable and often games as a service. So it's regular ongoing work versus the comparison you just made with film is often project-based. So it's lumpy. Mm. You've you got a job for a few months, then you've got some time and off, and then you've got a job for a few months. Um, so the great thing about gaming is it's consistent. Um, so more likely to be full-time employees rather than contractors. And the real magic, and this is when I talk at film industry conferences or to the Screen Producers Association, what they're actually jealous of isn't so much the money or not, it's the fact that we are in control of our own destiny. Mm. We're not having to suck up to a Hollywood studio or some client and and get those deals. We're publishing it ourselves. We're just either putting it on the internet freely or possibly via the App Store, Google Play Store, or say Steam. Yeah, because um, my gaming. sister works in the animation industry here in New Zealand, which is not very big, but and and they're forever under pressure to get the job out on time to get a new mm-hmm. job, and it's just you know very talented, but always, always, always under pressure. Yeah. Whereas the story you're talking about is one like you say, self determination. You set, you know, you set the thing in motion. You got a timeline. It just yeah, because they struggle all the time yeah. in her industry to. You know, and then when they finally do get to the end of it, they're so spent 
physically and mentally and everything else, you know, she comes and team, visits. <laughs> and the, probably the team, teams break up and yeah, so on when you finish those projects and, uh, and you've got to start again. And, and look, it's not always that horrible in the animation industry. No. And there's some great people there as well. But if it's contract work, also it's someone else's idea. Mm. And so you don't get to have that creative input versus if you if the you know if it's a New Zealand made game and the person in the room next to you was the founder of I the might company, have to send my sister you've got the ability <laughs> you, you can contribute creatively so, yeah. so that's yeah. that that's you know emotionally satisfying mm. but it does make for that more sustainable business sure. which is great and that's what that's what the film industry get envious of us about and we get envious of the fact that they actually get some government grants or matching investment. Um, and that's really just what is holding us back, that's, to mm. answer your, mm. your earlier mm. question. It's, and it's early-stage funding, in, in startups language speak, or in film industry speak, development funding. Mm-hmm. So just making a prototype, that, or you know, a beta or an alpha, putting it out there for crowdfunding, that's the, the barrier that we have to get over. Now, it's incredibly competitive. You know, because the barriers of entry have fallen, we've managed to get in with digital distribution and the like. So it means it's way more competitive now. So the bar for a good prototype or a good beta is higher. So these days, a $10,000 Kickstarter campaign is not enough. That's not going to... So we just need to scale up a bit more. So a $50,000, $100,000 grant, which is the equivalent of a short film grant, could be enough to make a quality beta and then the great thing is you don't have to invest anymore. We can get that market feedback faster and possibly grow organically from that point. So, yes, it's early stage funding is the challenge. Um, so us so the Game Developers Association, uh, we've got our conference coming up um, in two days' time this week, and we have our own small, you know, we put our money where our mouth is. We have the Kiwi Game Starter, which is our kind of Dragon's Den style pitch competition. Four teams will pitch. And actually, um, you know, ourselves and people in the industry is putting up the $10,000 that we have to help that winner um, get to the next stage. That's great. That's cool. Yeah. And there's a, there's a few pockets of interest. Actually, the, the Film Commission, to, the, to their credit, did do an interactive development uh, fund earlier this year where they just, they're just experimenting with supporting a few digital projects as mm. well. Mm. Oh, that's, uh, that, that's pleasing. And uh, you, you've got to imagine over time if these things are paying off and are working well that the, the funding will uh, will certainly become easier and easier to get access to, right? Yeah. Um, Australia had that um, that case. They they introduced a film fund, and uh, a games fund in one year, um, but then their mother of all budgets cancelled it in the second year. So they had one year of giving some matched funding grants to game studios. And then when they all got paid back successfully, the fund was not there to pay back into. So the Australian Game Developers Association at one point cheekily suggested, well, there's no fund to repay back into. We'll keep the money ourselves. <laughs> I think they ultimately paid it back. But with one, within one year, mm. they were already on the track to be sustainable. So, so, the, so the, the barrier or the ask there isn't for a government handout. It's some form of financing capability. You know, there's a market failure in early stage mm. financing in this particular industry. Mm. We do things about that with high tech startups. I was just thinking you might, be in, you might be in luck with the change of government. They'll give <laughs> money to anybody. <laughs> Maybe. Although, you know, the, as I said earlier, the current government, you know, through the Film Commission, are, are looking at the space as well. Mm. Um, but yes, look, Greens and Labour have said, why wouldn't you if you were trying to, you know, um, you know, introduce innovation and high-tech jobs, also apply that thinking to the film sector where we've already got some government assistance. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I'll be, uh, yeah, hopefully keep moving in the right direction there. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and let's not look too closely to Australia for uh, nah. in, in, inspiration. Actually, I, um, so because this is mostly a New Zealand audience, I can say it. So the $100 million that you know, New Zealand has earned, I think Australia's game earnings were only about 120 or so for a country four or five times the population. So, yeah, the good news is, the most important news is, we're beating the Australians. Nice, nice. But we want to beat the uh, finish. Yeah. Mm. Yes, well, yeah, there's certainly a huge industry over uh, over over there. Um, now, one last topic that we really should, uh, we should talk about, because I announced it last week, is that we have a, um, we have a sponsor coming on board for the New Zealand Tech Podcast, and most of our listeners will maybe have figured out because I remember when we did our survey on the po- to uh, to listeners going back oh, 
five years ago. It's been a, been a while. Um, you know, one of the first bits of feedback that came through was, oh, look, you know, you really should be, um, you know, having sponsorships and advertising and so on and, you know, expect, you know, you're putting a lot of time into this thing. You should be making some sort of return. And, um, you know, I took that on board to a degree, but I was always concerned with the sort of sponsors that um, – that seem to be the the easy options for us were potentially ones that were going to conflict with the sort of topics that we discuss, and so generally, you actually want to be able to you know talk about companies and and yeah, this is something I've certainly always felt is you just need to be able to be straight up in terms of what you feel about companies, and uh, it's it's maybe a little bit more uncomfortable if you've got if you're bearing the name of a company on your uh, on your content and uh, and and you. Yeah, uh, need to uh, slam them for something that they've done wrong. Um, so anyway, with 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 that in mind, we found um, we found a company called Process Street, who at Gorilla over the last year um, we've adopted their technology. We've just found it so good uh, that we've been recommending it to sort of everybody that we meet, and um, that was part of the reason why I invited Greg on the on the show this week because. Um, you know, Greg, when you joined uh, Gorilla going back, uh, yeah, a bit over a year ago, mm-hmm. uh, one of the, you know one of the things that you found was, look, we, we had lots of processes in the business. Um, you know, we're we're a business with with lots of standards around how we do things, um, but challenges with you know with with managing some of those things, seeing the results, uh, challenges with things like onboarding staff, the amount of time that goes into that, and. Um, yeah, Process Street was something that you jumped into because we've been looking at it for a period, but we didn't have anyone to champion it. So, I mean, maybe you can share a couple of thoughts on, on what you found with with uh, with Process Street as as yeah. a um, yeah. Uh, I think for myself, the first thing I noticed was that um, well, Paul's very talented. Obviously, we know this, and um, you know, he's been in the industry a long time. Has this huge wealth of knowledge, and what I saw in the business is I thought. How can we capture that in a one place where anyone coming into the business can can literally be connected with Paul in a way without him having to be in the room? And, and that kind of when I when I came in the business and I saw this thing, Process Street is one of the tools that were lined up, and I, I digged into that and I thought, wow, we could we could take a bit of Paul and just kind of pull that out of his brain and <laughs> and put it and push it in here, and then people. You know, new employees coming to the business, or even even the things that Paul often thinks about as as ways of transforming the business internally, or for our customer base. Um, you know, how do we get those thoughts and actually constructed in a way that that I could sit down and have a look through that and actually follow some of the guidance of that knowledge of all those years? And and uh, I very quickly identified that this this particular tool that was you know on the list of tools as options. Um, process Street to me just kind of fitted the bill straight away, and so I got got one of the young team members, very brilliant young man, uh, for what he does, just to to really take ownership of that space and find out how it all works and um, how we could move a lot of this knowledge out of Paul's mind, out of a ton of documents that have been built up in the business over a very long time, and we put them onto the platform of Process Street, and uh, it really helped to you know ease the burden on the boss. And this is, I think, for any any um, CEO or in any business where you're having to always be communicating what is often the same message to a new person or a new situation or a new client, Process Street just takes that away. Actually, it makes it so simple. So, so we really got them behind Process Street. Um, like I say, the young engineers really brought into it. We got a lot of knowledge out of Paul, and we started to translate that into Process Street. And really, all it is is it's a checklist of repetitive processes and you just tick the boxes when you've done them and then you can close it out and you know you've gone through and done all those steps and as if Paul was sitting there talking to himself so it's kind of quite exciting apologies so um so that, yeah, that's what we did, and, and it's I think it's been very transformative in the business. So. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's it's very good, and um, you know, it's not I guess it's not just simple checklists, and that you can pull in video and so on. So you know, onboarding processes, if that's something uh, that you know um, as as part of what you need to do in your organisation, and it certainly is uh, with with uh, with Gorilla. Um, yeah, we can capture a, a lot of those sort of general 
bits and pieces. And, and I think it's pretty common, uh, particularly as organisations grow, that you need to be able to uh, you know share information. I was, um, was, I was uh, somebody I was chatting to the other day actually who had, who had joined a uh, Microsoft um, uh, just before the new CEO came into play. And uh, so he was sort of saying that, yeah, he, when, he, when he joined Microsoft, uh, he was sitting there watching the onboarding videos and hearing from Steve Barmer, who, uh, of course, is, um, um, yes, certainly uh, no, 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 no longer uh, uh, leading Microsoft today. Um, but, you know, that, that was part of their uh, steps. But, yeah, it seems to be a very, very good, um, you know, set of tools, very easy to use. Um, and so, you know, we got talking to, uh, uh, to the CEO there at um our process street after our success and um, yeah, they've agreed to um, to partner with us and, and support uh, New Zealand Tech Podcast um, so for those that are interested in, uh, in checking it out and we do have an episode coming up um, with the uh, with the CEO of um, of process street with uh, Vinay Patanka uh, but those who are who are you know maybe curious already um, then we will have information up on the NZ Tech Podcast um, site uh, today nztechpodcast.com uh, slash process street um, is where you'll find uh, some info on that and if you want to try it uh, there's a free uh, version that you can access and then there are paid plans so it's uh, it's pretty easy um, and if you sign up through that link then that's how, how uh, we get a pat on the back from uh, Process Street uh, and if you drop us uh, an email then uh, we can also make sure that Process Street give you a discount if you actually decide to go from, from trial to, uh, to using the product um, so that's it for this show. So thanks everybody for uh, listening in. Thanks to uh, Process Street for uh, for supporting the podcast, mm-hmm. and um, thank you, gentlemen, for joining the show. Um, now, um, Stephen, where do we track you down online if people want to uh, get in touch or, or follow you? Are you, yep. Hey, so the the New Zealand Game Developers Association yep. has its website, which is yep. nzgda.com. Yeah, and there's also a far too active Facebook group. Okay. Um, then my own studio. Hey, if you want a video game made, come to ingame.co.nz um, and pursuitpr.co.nz if you want some tech marketing help as well. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, you can get hold of me on Facebook, just Greg Hutana. Just, yeah, I'll connect with you there. That's fantastic. That's great. Awesome. That's great. And, um, yep, if anyone who wants to get, get in touch with me directly, um, then just via my website, Paul, Paul Spain. Uh, dot com and of course my um, my weekly videos now are uh, are going through to Facebook and LinkedIn so feel free to connect with me in, in either of those places. All right, thanks. We'll catch you again next week. Cool. Awesome. See ya. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Paul. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.